It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rulebook, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Barry Ross, and this is The Big Rethink. As students go back to school, we're looking forward. What's in store for education in the years to come? What are the top trends and how will learning strategies evolve? How is tech playing a role in this transformation? In this episode, we'll find out the answers by listening to some of the past discussions with education experts. To start, we'll begin with a discussion between my fellow host, Susan Campbell, and Dr. Michael John McDonough, president of Raritan Valley Community College in New Jersey. Here, Dr. McDonough explains how technology is helping to improve education accessibility. So, and again, I, I, I want to recognize that I'm talking about the community college sector, mm-hmm. which has a dynamic, I think, all of its own. So we can take one of the most fundamental issues, um, and that is our students have problems physically getting to campus. We're not served by public transportation. Because we serve student populations that are often first generation, economically disadvantaged, um, the opportunity to really enhance Uh, remote learning is a great opportunity for us Mm -hmm. to reach even more students. Um, You know, prior to the pandemic, um, access to higher education is still a problem in this country. It's still a problem for certain student cohorts. So how can we exploit this opportunity, this moment, to reach out to that population? Everyone deserves access education, so it's great to hear how tech is making that possible through more remote learning opportunities. In this same episode, Dr. McDonough explains another way technology is revolutionizing how and when students learn and what the industry must focus on to improve student experiences. You know, one of the things that challenges our students is this notion that learning only takes place from September to December, and it's got to be 14 weeks long, right? So I think technology lets us provide students their own timetable. If they can demonstrate mastery of the learning outcomes at a pace that allows them, for example, to accelerate learning, how cool would that be? I think that's really important, right? Because yeah. why yeah. do you have to sit in a class for 14 weeks? I'm, right. not, I'm not knocking the 14 weeks. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more, and I, I have to laugh because um, I, I worked in uh, cable television industry uh, oh, many moons okay. ago at the time when we had to explain to people what a DVR was, <laughs> right? Right. And we used to talk about it in terms of going from prime time to my time. Right. So now we're talking about that shift, time shifting, right? You can time shifting your classroom work. You know, you're going to go from class time to my time and, and learning is a continue. I I think that's a a very interesting perspective. And, 
you know, if we're not learning, we're not living. So I like the opportunity. Right, right. No, no. I mean, I think so, you know, we've talked about this idea of a flipped classroom right. for a long time. But let's dig, di- let's dig deeper into that. Um, can we get students um, experiential learning opportunities that are meaningful? Can we embed uh, real career skills in academic courses? Why do we have this unnatural divide between career education? Yeah. And by the way, we often use that as a dirty word, right? And, you know, academia. Ac- acad- right. Yeah. That's, that's so, it's nonsense. It's non. It's the same thing. Yeah. So let's, let's throw it all up. Let's build a different kind of menu here for students. Um, and I think that how do we we could better collaborate with other institutions? Yeah, I don't I don't want to see colleges go out of business. So let's be creative. How mm-hmm. can we how can we share students? How can we share programs? How can we work better with private industry? Um, how can they help build programs? Look, state funding is going to collapse. Let's just acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. So how do I replace that revenue? I, I, I need to go to private industry mm-hmm. and, and they need to support my students in a different way. But these are, again, these are wonderful opportunities yeah. to, to rethink yeah. this whole business. Now let's pivot over to speaker, author, futurist, and Georgetown University scholar, Brian Alexander, who spoke with my co-host, Brian Rowley, to explain how technology can serve as a bridge and a divider during tumultuous times, and why some students and educators are more eager to embrace it than others. Here, Alexander talks about top considerations for the incoming school year and the need for teaching transformation. You know, what are some of the learnings and what are the roles that people have as they sort of head into sort of this this coming school year? I think at the top level, one of the learnings is that we have a job to do of improving teaching and learning, and we need to dedicate our institutions to it. And I, I don't think in my adult lifetime I've ever seen higher education this focused on improving pedagogy. And so this is a great thing to have. I mean, and, and this this happens. You you can see it playing out in areas as diverse as uh, supporting teaching and learning centers, or trying to support the scholarship of teaching, as well as trying to test out as many different pedagogies as possible. And we can drill down into that. I mean, for example, we have the uh, interesting divide between synchronous and asynchronous teaching. Is synchronous live, what you and I are doing right now, having a conversation in real time, has all kinds of benefits. And it's it's what the physical classroom actually is. People in a lab, people in the seminar room, people in a lecture hall. It's that live synchronous feeling, that, that fresh feeling of give and take, that sensibility that things are happening in the moment. And that's very powerful. And we can do that with a lot of technologies. Uh, Asynchronous teaching and learning is the exact opposite. That's when things happen uh, remotely and remotely in time. So 
We've done this before when you assign students to read a textbook or to read a novel or to go out and collect samples and bring them back. Uh, they do that to some extent on their own timing. And we already have lots of asynchronous work along these lines. They can be discussion board tools. Uh, they can evolve using plugins like, uh, say, Yellowdig to have more conversation. Uh, I have uh, exercises for my students where they edit a collaborative document together. But again, it's asynchronously. It's when they have time to do it. And that has the advantage of being more convenient to fit into students' lives. But also, the downside of being live is that we have great ideas that happen afterwards. Um, the French have this great term, uh, l'esprit d'escalier, the spirit of the staircase. You know, when you're in a party, you're having a conversation, you can't think of what to say, but as you leave, as you're going down the stairs, ah, it hits you. The right thing to say, right? Well, asynchronous learning is all about that spirit. You constantly have the chance to come back and, and fill in what you missed. So when it comes to the technology, one of the things that we learned is that synchronous is powerful, yet people have issues with it. If people do not have sufficient bandwidth, uh, at wherever they are, or if they're doing video, if they don't have a good space for doing video. Uh, similarly with audio, if they don't have enough silence, for example. Plus, there's issues with people who have neurological issues uh, and learning issues that could be overwhelmed by having 500 students in video feeds, for example. Um, now, the asynchronous has the advantage of often being less demanding in terms of bandwidth. Uh, so there's this interesting argument which says that maybe the just thing to do would be to make classes more and more more asynchronous. And the other argument is, well, we, we often think of classes as live, so we need them to be more synchronous. So that's not a single learning. That's an area of debate and of style and of support in schools of thought that's happening. It's true. The age-old debate of asynchronous and synchronous work time and learning is still a question educators are trying to figure out. But what about HyFlex, a combination of hybrid and flexible learning where students are given a choice in how they participate in the course and engage with material? Alexander thinks it's our future. I think in many ways that the HyFlex experience may become a kind of baseline. Uh, that is, as we care for students more, it might not be appropriate to require all of them to be physically co-located for class sessions. Uh, it might be that as we have students, again, dealing with long COVID, but who still want to be there, or students who are afraid of successive waves of the pandemic, or as we deal with other disasters. I mean, we're right now wading into climate change. Uh, this past summer, of course, showed just around the world a whole series of spectacular disasters, and they haven't, they're not going to get any better. Uh, so it may be that we're going to have more students and or faculty uh, who can't be co-present, and we're going to have to just get used to that blending of the physical and the virtual in our classrooms, uh, which means we have to rethink pedagogy, it means we have to rethink classroom design, and also our expectations. Ultimately, this debate really centers around the need for ways to improve student engagement. That's where Dr. Sonia Mangania spoke with Susan about why we need to update the current academic model, especially as technology's role continues to grow. We have taken essentially um, a 19th century pedagogical model, and that model is called the tell and practice model, 
where teachers tell students what to memorize.、Mm-hmm. Students practice and rehearse and memorize that information, and then regurgitate it back on some type of assessment to determine how well they memorized this content. That's the dominant pedagogical model at work in these United States: tell and practice. The problem is that that's a very low impact model.、Um, continuing research shows that lecture and and information delivery、um, has very low efficacy. It has a, a really decidedly meager impact on student learning. And what we've done is taken that model and added technology on top of it. So when you have a model that just is focused on memorization, no matter what technologies, no matter what innovations or inventions you add to it, if the focus is still on memorization, you're really not going to get the affordances that are provided by the technology. That's fascinating, and luckily some solutions are on the horizon. Dr. Magana shares how teachers can instill a love of learning in their students, and how it's as simple as working together. Let me ask you this: What advice would you give to other educators to foster educational success? <clears throat> excuse me, and a love of learning in their students? Because you just you are so excited about learning, and I just think that you must have some advice about how you think educators could impart some of that love of learning to their students. Yeah, it's a great question. I think、uh, we all have a love of learning. That's why we go into this field. It's a calling. Teaching is a calling. It's not a profession. You 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 either answer the call or you re- you or you re- you know reject it. But those that are in the work, it's it's difficult work. We're knowledge workers. So this is really challenging and complex. Um, a body of work, but we all did it because we love learning. I think I think to a person, folks that are in the field of education love to learn. They love to explore the world around them. They learn something new about themselves with each new、uh, learning experience they have. And so, my suggestion would be this: not so much advice, but a suggestion、um, is to shift from highly competitive learning spaces to more contributive learning spaces. I, if, I, if I may, I'll go in a little bit more、mm-hmm. detail to that because this is a, a, a theory that I've been developing called contributive learning theory, and it's quite simple, really. We learn better together than we learn in isolation. But too often, our learning spaces are highly competitive, where students are competing with each other for a graded average or a, a particular number of、uh, 4.0 grades. We, we focus too much on, on, on how the competition to memorize. And I think grading on the curve, right? Grading on the curve. It's, it's something that we all do. Yeah,、um, but the compounding and peer-reviewed research shows that when we shift to a more contributive learning model, where students are contributing not only to their academic success but to each other's well-being and、uh, mental, social, psychological health in the process of learning, that innate love that we all have—that's. Some of us may be buried inside,、um, uh, but it's there. It's released. It's drawn out. We draw out that innate desire to be a valued, contributing member of some cohort, and then learning flourishes. Finally, Dr. Mangania shares where he believes the future of learning is headed. 
funnily enough, that, that cyber school model you know, 25 years ago seemed like an anachronism. It just seemed like it was um, the wrong at the wrong time for that particular placement of learning. 25 years later, now it seems like an imperative. It yeah. no longer seems like it's out of place. It seems like an imperative. So I think a cyber learning future is is a vision I'd like to have folks leave with. What what imagine a world where students can interact with the each other, new content, deepen their understanding of content, apply their understanding of new content to solve wicked problems that matter to them, and in the process are recognizing that they can have access to learning experiences, deeply immersive learning experiences, 24-7, 365, and use their understanding to recognize that learning is not an end to itself. Learning is a means. And I would, I would submit that learning is a means to making the world a better place by identifying and solving one wicked problem at a time. If you want to hear the full episodes, they're available on our website or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us grow by visiting our feed on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. Well, that's it for us. I'm Barry Ross, and that was another episode of Big Rethink.